Hello, and welcome to the DMV Business Show, a weekly show where we get to meet local business and community leaders in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area. They get to impact their story and how they got there. You can expect to hear advice and learn about their journey and how they went from point A to point B. My name is Odo Sevilla, and I'm a commercial real estate advisor in the local DC, Maryland, and Northern Virginia area. I have been very fortunate to have worked with many amazing entrepreneurs and executives, from startup founders to international Fortune 500 companies. And one of the things I love about what I do is I get to form these great relationships with some interesting people. I get to know them and I learn about how it all started. And I love hearing a good business story. When I'm not working in commercial real estate, I just also happen to be the host of this show. So please enjoy and welcome to the DMV Business Show. Hello everyone, welcome to the DMV Business Show. I'm your host, Odo Sevilla. And today our special guest is Mary Abajay. Mary is the president and co-founder of CareerStone Group, and she's also a best-selling author of Managing Up, How to Move Up, Win at Work, and Succeed with Any Type of Boss. So this is a must-listen and watch. If you have a boss, if you want to be a boss and aspire to be one, if you work with a boss. Thank you, Mary, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really delighted to be here. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, people, everybody has a boss, even those of us who are our own bosses, because now our bosses are called our clients. So it's a skill for everybody needs, whether you're managing up, down or across. I agree with you 100%. It's a, it's a valuable skill we all need. So before we go into all that, I like to sort of the audience to get to know you as an individual, as a person a little bit better. Are you from around the DMV area? Oh, no. But okay, so I've lived in the DMV area. Well, actually, let me be really clear. I lived in the District of Columbia proper for going on, this will be my 31st year? Is that oh, wow. right? Yeah, I moved here in 1990, 31 years. Holy cannoli. That's a long time. So I've lived here since 1990. So I kind of feel like a resident or a native. Uh, but I actually grew up in Ohio. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, and that is where I'm born and raised as a Buckeye. Oh, okay. Where, where in DC do you live now? Around what neighborhood area? I live in the Glover Park neighborhood right now. And I've lived here for about 17 years, maybe 20. But I've lived uh, in DuPont Circle. I've lived on Capitol Hill and in Adams Morgan. Uh, so this is my fourth DC neighborhood. And I think I'm going to stay here because we have a house. We like it. We were lucky we bought our house in the late 90s. So we bought it for practically nothing. Because if you remember in the 90s, nobody wanted to live in DC. So houses were cheap. And so now I think we're going to die in this house because we have so much equity into it. So we're going to stay here. Yeah, it sounds like you're a lifer. I, I grew up in DC too. I, I moved out of DC after middle school. So I, I did a high school in Maryland and but but always around this area grew up. It's a great area. I love it. I mean, I when I moved here in 1990, I actually didn't intend to stay here. I had I grew up in Ohio. I went to college in Ohio. And then I moved to Boston for a couple of years because I wanted to be an East Coast kind of gal. Uh, and I loved it, but I wasn't very happy. I didn't find Boston very friendly. So I thought, well, I'm going to go to California. Maybe California is the place for me. But my sister lived here in DC. So I quit my job in Boston and I came to DC and I was going to take like a month off. I was 25 and just kind of hang out and then go to California and make my way. But literally I fell in love with DC. Like I loved it. Like in two weeks in DC, I made more friends than I did in two years in Boston. And so I came here just as a short kind of respite and made it my home. Oh, wow. 
So before we get to how you got here, how, how were you growing up in Ohio as a child? What were you into? I was a nerd. I'm a, I was a total nerd. I was a family, uh, one of four. I was a middle child, uh, but the oldest girl. Uh, I was very quiet, uh, very sh painfully shy, very introverted, uh, but at the same time, very bossy within my own nuclear family. Uh, we had a really fun time growing up, great parents, great childhood, uh, and I played sports and I read books, and that's about all I, all I did. And I had a couple of friends. Okay. And then you did, I, I assume, high school and everything in Ohio. And what about, did you go to college yep. afterwards or? Yep. So I went to high school in Ohio. I uh, went to a public high school, start high school for any of my Toledo people out there. Uh, and then I went to college also in Ohio to a small private college called Kenyon College, uh, which was just so eye-opening for me because that's the first time I really realized, wow, the world doesn't really revolve around the Midwest. And that was really a great college. Uh, majored in English and our history, you know, very great for job prospects. Although, I say that jokingly, but I'm a big fan of the liberal arts. I mean, when you, liberal arts teaches you how to write, how to think, how to be critical. So, and then from there, I went to Boston and then to DC. What made you decide that major in Ohio? Uh, because I am kind of a classics kind of person. Like I believe that good education is about, isn't about getting a job. It's about like learning how to think. It's about becoming kind of an intellectual. And quite frankly, I thought a major that lets me sit around and read books all the time sounded okay by me. Like I am always, I'm always going to be an English major for the rest of my life. It's my passion and my love. Uh, so that's, I did something that I loved. And then when I learned about our history, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so much fun too. So it was really more about following what interests me and what really captured my imagination. Did you know back then, Mary, studying what you studied, that you were eventually going to write a book one day? No. Nope, be an author? Nope. Never wanted to be an author. Never wanted to be a writer. Um, I didn't know. Actually, what I wanted to do when I went to college is I wanted to actually become a lawyer. Uh, and oh. so one of the reasons why I did English additionally was because I know lawyers need to be able to think critically. They need to be able to write. They need to be able to create arguments. And that's what you do when you study the classics, like, you know, uh, literature or history or history is that you have to actually, you know, read something, make sense of it, create an argument about it, support your argument. So I had, I'd always, always, always wanted to go to law school and always be a lawyer. And what changed as far as becoming an attorney one day? Oh, well, you know, it's a sad little story, actually. But when I was in college, um, my brother died my sophomore year, and, uh, and he was a junior. And then my mother died right after I graduated. So it was a really tough couple of years uh, after graduation. And so, you know, kind of grief kind of stymied me. So I kind of one of the reasons I moved to Boston was just to kind of get myself together. And quite frankly, I didn't know anybody that could help me. Like I didn't know how to do it. And being an introvert and kind of being at that point afraid to ask for help, I just didn't know how to go about doing it. So I just put it off and I started doing other jobs, you know, getting in other fields. And then I just started liking what I was doing and just never decided to go back. And to this day, Odo, I will tell you, that was probably a really good thing because if I had been a lawyer, I know I would have been one of those workaholic lawyers that was all about work. I probably would be uh, a very unhappy, argumentative, and probably not a fun person at all. So in many ways, I'm kind of glad I dodged that bolt. Not that there's anything wrong with law. I still love it. Uh, I, yeah, I have tons of lawyer friends, but I think it would have been one of those careers that would have consumed me and not I in a good way. Well, you know, sometimes things happen for a reason. Yeah, sometimes yeah. they do. So from Ohio, what made you to move to Boston? And then I guess from Boston to California, the West Coast? 
Well, I never went to California, so oh. I stopped off in DC and stayed here. Um, okay. So I wanted to go to Boston because I thought it was a fabulous city. I wanted to live on the East Coast. I wanted a real East Coast experience. Uh, and I loved it. I loved the city of Boston. Uh, and I loved uh, like the geographical location of it. I loved everything about it. But honestly, I didn't find people very friendly in Boston. I found it kind of parochial and kind of not really very liberal. Like they, you know, they're supposed to be like this great blue state, this great blue city, but I found people pretty intolerant of each other. And so I just never, and a hard, it's a hard community to break into unless you go to school there or you're from there. So that's why I ended up leaving. And how long were you in Boston for? Uh, two and a half years. Okay. And then you came to DC because you said your sister was down here? My sister was here. And so I came and I stayed with her for a couple of weeks and then said, I'm going to stay for, and I literally, I put in just on a whim, I put in one resume to one company. Uh, it was the Capitol Children's Museum to be their director of public relations, to which I really didn't have that much experience. Uh, and just on a whim, and they said, yeah, you're hired. So I got a job within a couple of weeks of being here. And I wasn't even trying. I thought, oh, you know, someone told me about it. I thought that sounds interesting. And so then that, that, I made my home here and, you know, forced my sister's roommate to leave so that I could become her roommate. <laughs> so then you come here and you're director, I guess, of PR for a children's museum? For the, so for the Capitol Children's Museum, okay. uh, which was a fantastic job. Uh, this was back when the Children's Museum was located at 3rd and H Northeast. So this is 1990. Uh, uh, and so, you know, uh, that part, you know, just a little bit, that would be a little bit, what, north of, just a couple blocks off of, um, of uh, Union Station. And so that wasn't really a great neighborhood back then. It wasn't what it is today. Uh, so I was the Children's Museum uh, PR director there, which was super fun. I got to give all the celebrity tours like Michael Jackson and Cher and, and Barbara Bush. And if you were a celebrity back then, you usually hit up the Children's Museum when you came through. So that was really fun. And then from there, uh, that was such a fun job. I and mean, we didn't pay anything, but it was so much fun. And then from there- Were you able to take I, at least pictures, Mary, when the visitors would come as far as any Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Like, like if you can see, can you see behind my shoulder? Yeah. You can see that picture there, that's Cher and me. Oh, okay. <laughs> Down there by that ladybug, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, we took, oh, we have some great stories. Like we had, um, one time, uh, so Michael Jackson was a really big uh, sort of supporter of the Capitol Children's Museum. And I probably shouldn't tell the story, but I'm gonna tell it anyway. And he, uh, so he would come through occasionally when he came through town. And one time he was coming through and we get a call and the executive director was out of town on a trip. So the next person in charge is me when it comes to you know celebrity tours. And they said, listen, those Michael's handlers. And they said, listen, Michael really wants to come by. He wants to bring his little cousin through the museum. You know, would you be willing to kind of clear out the museum and give him some private space? And we were like, of course we would. And they said, and can you please not tell the press? Because it's really, he just wants us to be a private visit. I'm like, of course not. We'd never do that. So I get off the phone. The first thing I do is call the media. <laughs> it's like, Michael Jackson's coming. Michael Jackson's coming. And then my next call is to our security because we had security back then because the neighborhood wasn't great. And I said, oh my God, Michael Jackson's coming. Uh, I think the media knows about it. You need to keep all the media out of the building, you know, out of the perimeter, because we took this whole block. And so Michael Jackson got there, of course, it's loaded with press, but they couldn't get into the building to the, because we had like a fortress uh, because of the, of the, um, of our security guards. And so they were like, Mary, thank you so much for keeping the media out, out of here. Like, this was so nice of you. And I was like, I know, I, you know, we really care. So I got the best of both worlds. I learned how to make a win-win. Oh, that's great. I love that story. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. And then he was all masked up, you know, and he had the gloves and he had like, it was really interesting. 
Okay. Okay. How long and were his you? His little cousin didn't look like a cousin, but anyway. <laughs> oh, really? Didn't look like he was related to Michael Jackson. <laughs> oh, okay. How old? How old did it look like the the cousin? Uh, look, cousin looked like he was like twelve or thirteen. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I'm well, sure we you... didn't think anything about it then, but now yeah. with all the all the you know all sure. the, the reports about Michael Jackson, we all we're like, hmm, I wonder who that little boy was. But okay. I mean, it was all fine. Nothing happened. But yeah, how long were you at the museum for? So I was at the museum. I want to say for three years, and then one of the members of the board of directors of the museum was a man named John Wilson. Uh, and John Wilson was the city council chairperson. Uh, thus, you know, the Wilson building is yes. named after John Wilson. And so John Wilson, uh, he convinced me, lured me, um, took me away from the Children's Museum to go work for him. Uh, so that I was very excited about this opportunity because, you know, John Wilson in the early 90s was the man. Like you work for John and like you can name any job you want after a couple of years. So I thought, oh my God, because I told John, like, listen, I'm not really into the politics like doesn't interest me and he goes no 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 Mary you come work for me you'll do special events you'll do you'll be he wanted to make me to his press person at some at one point he's like just come work for me it's going to be great and then you can figure out what is it you want to do as we move forward and when you're done with this then you can you know I'll help you find your next job I was like oh my god this is a win-win a win-win-win so I think I began working for him in September I can't remember the year it was either 92 or 93 um and then six months later is when he hanged himself. Uh, so I only worked for John for about six months before he committed suicide. And that was just devastating. Uh, and then um, that was very devastating. Uh, it was a great loss. He was a great man. Uh, and then Dave Clark became chairman. Uh, and so I worked for him for a while. And he was, in, I know he's very beloved you, you, uh, by many people here, but I'm here to tell you he was a horrible person to work for. He was toxic. He was a screamer. He was a shouter. Uh, he was, it was really brutal. And so uh, he started, so, uh, so John Wilson killed himself in the May and then the election happened. And then I want to say it was fall, what would have been, I think, fall when uh, David Clark got elected as uh, chairman of the city council. And I think I worked for him maybe for three months before I quit. And I'll never forget this quitting when I went to tell him that um, I wasn't going to work for him anymore. He, first of all, he got so angry. Uh, he screamed at me. He asked me, what are you going to do? And I said, well, actually, I'm going to open up a, a, a restaurant bar with my sister. And that was Morgan. He said, you're going to be a complete failure. And when you fail, don't you come back here and ask me for a job again. I mean, a complete wow. asshole, like really bad. And he was like, and John Wilson wasn't an easy boss, but at least John Wilson wasn't like that. So I have... Yeah, I have no, there's no, I just think Dave, Dave Clark was one of the last bosses I had that decided, like, that's when it started brewing in my head that I'm going to have to write a book about bad bosses because he was really, he was terrible. And I'm sorry to like mar his memory, but I believe in telling the truth when it comes yeah. to bosses. No, definitely. Before moving to the museum and then moving to sort of this side of things, were you before in Boston or elsewhere and knew about PR or press or anything like that at all? Yeah, so uh, I did. So when I was uh, my first job uh, in Boston was working for a um, 
a Macintosh software developer that made, that created accounting software. So my first job was as receptionist, of course, because back in the day, that's where all of us young women had to start. And then they moved me into the accounting department, which was just horrible. I kept saying to the, to the CEO, I'm like, I, I don't know anything about money. I don't know anything about accounting. I'm an English major. And he was kind of a bully boss too, but I got along well with him. He said, well, listen, Mary, what do we make here? And I said, well, we make accounting software. And he's like, yeah, so you're going to go learn the accounting software by working in our accounting department. I was like, oh, okay. So I learned about accounting, which was actually turned out to be very beneficial for owning your own business. I didn't know it then. And then uh, they started, they, when they would go to trade shows, they needed somebody else to, they need to round out the trade show team. And because uh, I knew the software and apparently I was good at talking with people, um, they had me go on to the software. They had me go to the trade shows. And so that was super fun. And so I only really was in the accounting department for maybe six, seven months. And then they moved me into the marketing department. So, and I worked there for a couple of years doing marketing. And then I got a call from this big Macintosh conference uh, um, producer, and they were looking for someone to be the conference director for a new Macintosh business trade show that they were about to launch. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. And so I moved over there. And so for two years, I was their conference director for this uh, biannual uh, uh, national uh, Macintosh business conference and exposition. And that was a great job. I love that. And so by the time I came, it was a children's museum. Well, I hadn't really done PR. I had developed a lot of programs. I'd done a lot of marketing. I, you know, did a lot of things that were very creative and fun. So that was, but I didn't really know how to write a press release. I had to learn that pretty fast. Mary, you know, some people like to fly under the radar and I'm the type of person and that's fine and they can be successful, but I, I believe, you know, PR promoting it's in my personal opinion, it should be part of someone's business. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts there? As far as people, you know, you hear that, you know, just like under the radar, just doing my work and that's it. No, so everybody needs to be able to, if you're talking about as, as individuals, as an individual career person, you have to be able to promote yourself. Uh, I call it, I wrote an article, I think for Forbes, I think I called it shameless self-promoting. And what I meant by that is, you need to learn how to, we all need to learn how to promote ourselves without feeling ashamed about it. And there's a fine line between uh, being able to give yourself good PR, being able to advocate for yourself and being arrogant and all about me, right? So it is a, a fine line, but I think, and I think this is very true for women. I think women tend to fall on the, on the, on the less is more when sometimes their less is just less, right? So it's about really understanding how, how do people know what you do? Um, it's not what you know. It's not who, who you know, but it's who knows you. So we do have to always be thinking about in our career, how do we make sure that people know who we are? They know our brand. They know our good work without being, you know, horrible and arrogant and braggy, but you still have to let people know how good and talented you are. And I, and I think you do a fantastic job doing that yourself. Well, you know, I'll say this. So it's been, and I, I'm curious about how other entrepreneurs think about this. I find it much easier to promote my company than to promote me. And that was fine for many years until the book came out. And then I have to promote the book, which is fine. But if I do interviews and people want to interview me about the book, I always, I, I still feel funny saying like, oh yes, I wrote this book. So oftentimes I'll be like, oh yeah, we wrote the book for XYZ reason. And the interviewer will say, well, Mary, did you have a co-author? They're like, who's we? And I'm like, oh, no, no, it's just me. It's just, I still can't say I wrote the book. Like, so it is still really hard, but nothing 
I mean, when you have to promote a book, like you have to get out there, like you have to talk about that book all the time. You've got to be tweeting and LinkedIn and posting. And it felt really awkward at first. Like I was like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed to be doing this for myself. But for any entrepreneur, you know, you have to do that. You have to promote your business, your service, your products. And sometimes it feels awkward, but you got to do it. There's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of people that do what you do out there. How are they going to be able to separate you from others? How are they going to know about you? So it's doesn't it's getting easier, but it isn't always easy. I, I agree. I mean, if you don't advocate for yourself, then who's going to do it? Whether no. you are your own, you have your own business, or whether you're just an employee of a company. That's right. I mean, I think my what a, what I really want a lot of young people to know, especially young women, is that the world is not a meritocracy. That's a part of career success, being really good at what you do. And that's an important part of career success. Don't get me wrong, but that's not all it takes. Like you can't just keep your head down, do great work and expect people to notice. You do have to raise a little bit of awareness around your fabulosity. Otherwise, if you're waiting for people just to notice you, uh, you may be waiting a very long time. I'm curious, since we're in this topic, how can someone, lady, gentleman, whatever age, can go about sort of, you know, showing whether they're a boss or, or someone else what they're capable of doing, what they have they done? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there's a lot of ways to do it. Uh, so I will say, first of all, you want to always be, you want to always be, um, uh, in contact, in, in conversation in some way with your bosses or your manager, right? You always want to be keeping them in the loop, especially now that we're remote. You want to be keeping them in the loop about what you're working on, your productivity. I think all too often people assume that their bosses know exactly what they do all day long. Don't ever make that assumption. Really keep your boss on the radar. You also want to be having conversations with your boss or other organizational leaders about other things you want to learn or work on or do, which which means raising your hand for opportunities, raising your hand when you see initiatives, suggesting, being entrepreneurial, hey, what if we did this? I could lead this up. And if they say, no, you're not ready, say, well, could I be on the part of the team? Volunteer in other parts of your organization to help on other projects. Really get yourself known, really grow your skills. Um, when you are meeting with other people, try to get to know other people besides the people that you work right next to. Like imagine, I know it hasn't it's been a while, but remember the office parties or office events we'd meet in person you know how often how easy is it for you if you're in the accounting department or in the public relations department just to stick with your own tribe at those parties right and not spread out spread out get to know other people in other departments you should know at least one person in every department of your organization i mean really know them and share what you're working on say hey what are you working on odo i've been working on xyz it's been really fun you've got to learn how to talk about your accomplishments and talk about the projects you're a part of. You don't want to be too much I, 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 but you could say something like, oh my goodness, I, I've just been working on this project with Odo and his team. And it's been so fascinating. I've learned X, Y, Z. And I think together we've created something really good. So you're doing a little bit of I, a little bit of we, a whole bunch of like raising up and pumping up other people uh, and then making yourself look good in the interim. I love that, Mary. What if, let's say, someone's in an organization that's not that large and may not have all these different departments and opportunities? Maybe it's a small organization, I don't know, under 20, 10, 30 people. And, you know, you go to your boss and you tell them, hey, I'm interested in this and that. And they're like, okay, sure, sure. I, I hear you, Mary. And, but nothing happens. And then you say it again. And then, 
since it's a small company, what do you suggest on someone in that position to do? So what you want to do in that position is you need to make it easier for your boss to do something. So let's say, Odo, let's say I worked for you, you're my boss, and let's say it's a group of like 15 people. And let's say what's, you know, let's say you're in real estate, right? Yes, commercial real yes. estate. So let's say, you know, I have an idea for an app for your company, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so what I would do is say, hey, Odo, I know we've talked about doing this app before. And, you know, I know we have a lot on our plate and I think I can make it happen. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get research from XYZ. I'm going to create like a prototype for you. And then I'm going to come share it with you. What do you think about that? So take the initiative first. Take the initiative, get a move it forward. You know, sometimes you just want to like do something and then show it to them. Uh, or if I say, if I'm, if I'm like, you know, I want to get my license and whatever, I'm going to say, Odo, here's a class I have found that's going to help me do this. Uh, here's how much it would cost. Uh, here's how I think I can make sure that I'm paying for it through my work or whatever. Like sure. you've got to take the initiative to, to make that those first couple actionable steps. Oh, that's great. That's great. So How'd you end up in a bar? That's where we left uh, <laughs> a bar so, in Adams Morgan, which, yeah. which is a great area. I, I would, yeah. that's the place to be. <laughs> so we opened the bar, I want to say 1994. I probably should check these dates for us. The bar was called the Toledo Lounge uh, because my sister and I were from Toledo. And so this bar, I have to say a couple things about this bar. Um, one, it was a fantastic bar. And if you ask people who've been in DC for a while, they'll be like, oh my God, the Toledo Lounge, the Toledo Lounge. So we were, we had a really great experience. Um, we were very sick. So we, the bar was a very- um, Were you on 18th uh, Street? We're at right on 18th Street. Okay. So for those who've been around for a while, it was across the street from cities between Montego Bay and Joyota. I don't know what's there anymore. Um, <laughs> and uh, so my sister, well, first of all, my growing up, my father owned a nightclub. So we understood, although we didn't really ever work there, we understood that when you opened up a bar and a restaurant like that was, that is a business. It's not sure. a club that you invite your friends to where you're going to drink up or snort up your profits. Like it's a business. It needs to be run as such. Uh, so we opened it, we opened it up and we made, it was kind of a, it was a, it was a, it was a quote unquote dive bar. So we made it look really kind of divey and very casual. And at this time, everybody was doing brass and ferns and, you know, all that. And so we just went like old school, dark red uh, booths. Uh, our food was like, everything was homemade. It was grilled cheese sandwiches, burgers. It was like a better version of the tune in. Um, anyway, so we were very lucky. We were literally in, we were in the black within, I want to say like eight weeks, like oh, it wow. was slammed from day one lines around the corner. Like it, we just got, it was just the right place at the right time in the right location by the right people. Like it was like, uh, it was really, it was really lovely. So we, yeah. So we had a lot of success, learned a ton about leadership and management from that experience and about customer service and about whole host of organizational stuff. And that's really what got me interested in doing what I do now is really seeing how you create something, how you create a culture, how you manage it, how you manage the customers, how you lead a team. It was, yeah, it was really funny. It was Mary, fun. Mary, before going to leadership and management and everything, I'm curious, I mean, that's great success in an eight week period of time. Yeah. Was that some of your PR skills that came in handy? No? We know because uh, we, well, we did a little bit of PR, we did a little bit of advertising, but we had, 
you know, this kind of takes me kind of back to Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point. We got kind of lucky in that we had a few very influential people come into our bar just by happenstance and promote the hell of it to their friends. Like we had, I think that was the years the Clintons were in office. So for some reason, we had a couple of journalists pop in like in that first couple of days and they told everybody. So we became a big journalist hangout. Um, the, the guy who's a bartender at Cities, it was across the street, uh, he loved it. So he would send customers from his bar into our bar because um, he thought it was so great. And like Tim Russert happened in like on the first week, you know, Tim Russert from Meet the Press. Mm -hmm. And he told everybody, and he used to come in every Friday, every Friday for the minute we would open at five, he would be there. He would drink exactly two Rolling Rocks on draft, our happy hour. Uh, and he would stay for 45 minutes and then he would go every single Friday. And he was so nice to everybody because people who would kind of wander in early would be like, oh my God, is that Tim Russert? Oh my God, is that Tim Russert? He was a lovely, lovely, gracious, gracious human being. Oh, so a lot of word of mouth. What any of these, er, a lot of these journalists that would come in, was there any pieces being written on the post or anything else like that? Or yeah, so the post, I think the post, yeah, the post did a big story on us. The, the Toledo Blade did a big story on us. Oh. Um, we had the, we were in the cover of Washingtonian magazine too, about six months after we opened. I'm going to see if that's a picture of it. Yeah. I think you see that picture of my sister and I behind me. Okay. Or no, see like that Holy Toledo below me on the bottom of my screen. Yes. I see that it. Was from yeah. the Washingtonian. Um, and it was really funny because we said when we first opened, if you're from Toledo and can prove it, uh, <laughs> your first drink is on us. Cause I'm thinking what the hell, maybe five people in this town are from Toledo. Oh no, my frere, there are a lot of people from Toledo and they're all coming to get their free drinks. So we would be like, all right, what high school did you go to? Or that we had all these questions. Okay. But one funny aside is that when I grew up in Toledo, so Toledo proper is not very fancy, but the surrounding suburbs are fancy, right? So when you're in Toledo and people are like, oh, where do you live? I live in Toledo. And if they live and they're like, oh, I live in Sylvania or oh, I'm in mommy. Like, you know, like they made you feel lower than because you were Toledo proper. Sure, so sure. they'd come into the bar and I'd be like, oh, what high school did you go to? And they'd say, oh, I went to mommy Valley Country Day School. I'm like, oh, so you're actually from Perrysburg, not, not Toledo. Is that right? Oh, well, you know, Mary, it's the same thing. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. It's not the same thing. Because if we were home, you would be sure to tell me it's not the same thing. So it's kind of funny. Yeah, that is interesting. But how'd you even end up with a bar? Was it your idea, your sister's? Or I'm sure it was already a former bar and then you guys took it yeah, over? So it was my sister's idea. And one of her best friends was a man named Joe Englert, who sadly just passed this past year, passed away. And Joe Englert was the guy who, was, uh, who did all the H Street new bars and renovations. He did uh, Planet Fred, the Lucky Bar, Capital Lounge, um, 15 Minutes Club, Insect Club. Like he, he was a real um, thought leader. And so he and my sister were friends. And he said to my sister, you and your sister should open up a bar uh, on 18th Street. And I will help show you how to do it. And he was, he was our godfather throughout the whole process. Did, did you enjoy being in the bar business? Hated it. Hated really? it, hated it, hated it. Um, my sister loved it. I hated it. Uh, it's fun now to talk about it, but I didn't really enjoy it. For anybody who thinks they want to own a bar or a little restaurant, let me tell you what your day is going to be like, because every day is the same. You're going to walk in. You're going to say, what's broken? Because something's always broken. 
who's not going to show up for work today because someone's always not showing up for work and how much are all these things going to cost me? Like that's what it is every day. So I actually found it kind of boring. Um, I found it really boring because it's just kind of the same. I did enjoy bartending though. Bartending was super fun. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I did find every day was the same. And so I learned a lot about myself in terms of I'm really good at creating things. Um, uh, but I don't really like just to babysit things. And so what really started to interest me was a lot of people would come to us and they'd say, you know, um, how did you do this? Like, what helped you be successful? Like, how did you build this amazing team? Um, you know, how did you think about this? And I found that I really loved helping other people think about how they could be successful, helping other people think about what they were trying to create in their lives and how could I, you know, help them do that, you know, uh, either through, you know, giving advice or just, you know, talking with them about it. And that's when we, when I finally said to my sister, I am done with this bar business because we also did nightclub too um i said I, i'm going to go into consulting and so that's what i did went back to school um got a couple degrees and started consulting and then that's where career stone was born that's where career stone was born so started career stone in 2000 so i left the bar business in 2000 um and then I went back to school. I did some independent consulting. I worked for a small firm for a couple of years. And then in 2007, I started CareerStone. And the idea behind CareerStone, this was in 2007, this is when the millennials were just hitting the, the workplace. Everyone's like, oh my God, millennials. Oh my God, it's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. And I love millennials. Um, and so we really started uh, our consulting business focused on two things, helping organizations really adapt to the changing demographic of the workforce, because that was going to create change in the workforce. And it did create good, good change in the workforce. And two, helping millennials uh, do some early career professional development, early career leadership, uh, because uh, a lot of most organizations don't really have um, uh, the bandwidth to create their own leadership development programs. So that's why we, we did a lot of early career and emerging leadership development programs. And that's how we started. That's great. Back then, when you had all these people coming to you, Mary, saying, how'd you do this with the bar? How'd you start so successful and everything? What would you tell them? What were so a few things you can remember that you did back then with the bar that, that helped your business and maybe another business can implement and help them? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I don't have to think about this. Well, I would always talk about the fact that understand what your business is right? Um, what is your business? What are you in the business of doing? Uh, what are your business goals? I would always use the word business because a lot of people don't understand that the whole idea of a business is to make money or it's a business, right? Like with the, I, how many bars and restaurants go under because they have people don't understand the mindset of cash flow. And I, by the way, I still can't read a balance sheet, but I know how much cash I have, right? I know how much debt I have at all times. Like I'm able to do like, you know, caveman, cavewoman figuring. Sure. Uh, so understand what your business is. Understand what your goals are. What are you trying to accomplish? Uh, be strategic about rolling things out, you know. Um, uh, know how to build a team. What else would I talk people through? Um, knowing how to lead people, making sure you have the right people around you. Even to this day, I talk with a lot of people around how to start consulting businesses. Uh, and one of the things I say with the consulting people is, um, you better know how to sell because 
businesses are about selling, right? Now, when you're selling booze, that's kind of easy. Everyone wants to buy booze. But when you're selling your consulting services, like what are you selling? And so I, I, I don't want to disillusion people, but I don't want people who are going to go into the consulting field to think that all they get to do all day is help people solve problems. I'm going to make the world a better place. Yes, you will, but first you got to sell it, right? So always be prepared if you're going to go into business for yourself that you have to be comfortable with selling. So someone who, like you mentioned this example, perfect example, Mary, that it wants, that loves the consulting, the advisory role, but doesn't know step one, which is whether it's promoting oneself, whether it's making that sale and getting that business and then actually working on that business. Are they, what would you suggest classes to learn how to maybe these new skills as far as selling and how to communicate with a potential client or customer? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways to do it. Um, if you know, you can learn. You, there's so much out there online, free learning that you can learn and get comfortable with. So it's it's you know, if you're just starting out, first thing is pick, first of all, know what you're going to sell. Like, it's really important to have, uh, you know, in the bar business, we'd call it loss leaders, but here's like pick one or two specialties that you can really get known for. Um, you're, you can, you can do a little bit about throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks, but you also want to have one or two in your hip pockets that people start to think, Oh, the Toledo lounge, $2 rolling rocks, you know, Oh, Mary Abajay, you know, managing up now. So get one or two areas where you're really, really skilled at so you can introduce yourself. Also, you might want to pick an industry because it's very hard to market to yourself everywhere. So maybe you want to pick an industry or a niche. It makes the marketing a little bit easier because you have to start networking people. So get your niche either by your service or by your industry. So those are, I think, the first two really important steps that you have to do. I also recommend people think about having a partner. Being a solopreneur is a lot of work. Uh, when I started my business, I had a partner and it was great because we could divide and conquer. It really helped us grow quickly and so we could more quickly hire employees. So think be thinking about that. Um, so those are the things I would say in the very beginning, like think about where you're gonna market, who you're gonna market to and what you are going to market. That can make it less burdensome. I love and that. then I would also say in terms of social media, I'd say, you know, it's fine to be involved in, you know, both on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, but you kind of, if you have a limited bandwidth and all the small businesses do, pick one that you're really going to focus on. So I mostly focus on LinkedIn because um, uh, I think it's best fit for what my services do. My sister and her husband own a custom furniture business. Uh, so Dave Stein builds these beautiful and uber expensive like furniture tables, things like that. They focus on Instagram because it's a it's much more of a visual product that he's selling. So figure out what's the best social media outlet for you and start building your tribe. I love that. So I, I take it your sister's no longer in the bar and nightclub business. No, she's okay. not. So yeah, no, she's not. She left DC. She left DC like in 2001. And oh, she so she's actually, no longer here. Okay. She's no longer here. No, she makes me sad. Uh, she's in St. Louis, which is a great town. Uh, no, I actually left the business first uh, and I just gave her my shares and then she sold it a couple of years later because my career stone business got to be so, I didn't, you know, I wasn't even involved in the, the lounge except for you know as a figurehead but even you know even the the one hour a month i would spend there i just had to let go of because it's hard to um it's hard to do run two businesses but i'll tell you a funny story um when i was doing both when i had the bar and i had the consulting company i would i 
didn't really tell people I owned the bar because the minute I would, people would be like, oh my God, that's so cool. And so then someone who I was doing amazing consulting work for, the next time they would introduce me to somebody, they'd be like, oh, this is my friend, Mary. This is my consultant, Mary. She owns a bar. And so the bar always still became cooler than the consulting. So I had to stop telling people and get rid of the bar because I know people in America have a, have a real kind of love or, you know, idealized version of what it's like to own a bar. So I had to just stop trying to get rid of it. So people would stop talking about it. Yeah. It's sort of that cool factor, the bar or the nightclub or whatever it may be. Well, you know, that's exactly right. And so I don't have a cool card for a while, but uh, you know, I, I can remember um, going to like college reunions and, you know, my college, you know, people at my college reunions are like, you know, VPs of, you know, uh, JP Morgan Chase and things like that. And we'd all be talking, everyone was like, you know, what are you doing? Well, I'm, you know, I'm head general counsel for this or I'm this. And then Mary, what are you doing? I own a bar. And I'd be really embarrassed, but everybody would be like, you own a bar? That's the coolest. <laughs> so it's just one of those weird things. Mary, so how did the book come about? So you started Career Stone and um, did you have, even when you started the company that I'm going to write a book one day? Nope. nope. Okay. Uh, so I have never had any desire to write a book. Um, and, uh, and so we had done, we, and one of the reasons I didn't want to write a book, cause I just couldn't see anything out there that hadn't already been written about. Right. Uh, and so in my weird brain, it's like, well, if someone's already written about it once, I don't need to write it again. Um, I think that's an introvert thing. Uh, so, uh, I had never, I did no, no desire to write a book. And, um, we had started this workshop called managing up pretty soon after we started the company. So maybe a year into the company, we started this workshop. And I started it, we designed it because I, we had a lot of young people just come to us and just complain about their bosses. My boss doesn't do this. She needs to do that. They don't know how to do this. Like, uh, like wah, wah, wah. And I had a lot of bosses complain about their people. Like they know, wah, 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 wah. And I was like, people, why are you not talking to each other? This is not that hard. I have had lots of pain in the ass bosses and I've figured it out. So figure it out. So we decided to create a workshop to help people figure out. So it was one of our most popular workshops, super, super fun. Um, all based on really pragmatic ideas about what you can do to make that relationship work for, work for you. Because Odo, if you're my boss, you're not gonna change. I'm not gonna change who you are. So if I can't change who you are, then I need to think about how I need to change how I interact with you, right? Uh, because if you're my boss, your influence, you have a lot of influence over my career, uh, over my career success. So I wanna make sure we have a good, positive and productive relationship. I'm not gonna be a suck up, but I am gonna try and figure out how to align my ways of working with your preferences, your priorities and your pet peeves so that I can succeed, you can succeed and the organization can succeed. So long story short, uh, Wiley, the publisher uh, reached out to me I wanted to say it was probably the fall of 2016 or 17. And they said, hey, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I thought it was a crane call, honestly. Because was like, I, was, I thought it was a crane call. And I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. Uh, and then I realized about halfway through the conversation that she was a real publisher. It really was Wiley. Anyway, long story short, people hate it when I say this, but I told them no. I said, I don't have the bandwidth uh, to write a book. I don't really want to write a book. Uh, and I said, to be perfectly honest, you know, my father uh, was just diagnosed with dementia in Ohio. And so I am flying back and forth 
to Ohio every couple of weeks. Uh, and I just, I, I can't, I can't. And she said, um, this is a good lesson for me about being vulnerable and being honest. And she said, you know what, Mary, I was in the same position uh, last year. I'm going to give you six months. I'm going to call you back in January. And I said, okay, thank you. Thinking she's never calling me back. <clears throat> Second week in January, ring, ring. It's Wiley again. Have you given much thought to it? So I said, ah, okay, well, let me think about it. Let me call you back. And so then I went, I asked everybody that I cared about their opinion, uh, what I should do. My husband said, don't do it. Uh, and then my sister said, do it. Both of my staff said, what are you out of your mind? Of course you have to do it. Who has a publisher? Call them. So I said, well, my husband's usually always wrong. So that's good. <laughs> so then I said, yes. And then, and then I honestly, I thought, what's the easiest book that I could write right now? Cause I'm still going back and forth through a every couple of weeks. And then I thought, you know what? There's only been about 15 books actually written on managing up and there's been a gazillion written on managing. So I'm going to do managing up and that's how it started. Awesome. How did Wiley even find you in the first place? Okay. That I keep meaning to ask them and I keep forgetting to ask them. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's information I should know. So I have no idea. I have no idea. But back then, Mary, were you putting out things out there still? I mean, I'm sure this is prior to social media the way it is now, right? Well, no, this was 2017. Oh, so okay. So yes. A couple of years ago, 2016. No, I wasn't. We were, I had some things on YouTube. We had a few articles on our website, uh, but mostly I was doing a lot of workshops and a lot of, um, I was doing TV on a regular basis, local TV on a regular basis uh, okay. and radio, but I wasn't really not, I wasn't putting stuff out like I am now. You're I'm up stuff up. I'm, the reason I'm, I'm putting more stuff out now is because of the book. Okay. Okay. You were mentioning earlier, as far as people would come to you complaining about their boss and this and that, and all their bad experience. And you mentioned, what are some, I guess, things that someone can do if they're having a problem communicating or interacting with that boss? Yeah. So the, the, the basic idea of managing up is I want to be really clear to people. Uh, it's not about sucking up. It's not about being a sycophant, right? It is about actually uh, creating and sustaining a productive and positive working relationship with the powers above you in the food chain so that everyone can find success. So that's the first thing. And people have to realize that, as I said earlier, we can't change who other people are. Your boss probably got to be your boss by the way he or she or they are interacting or performing in the workplace. So the odds of you changing who they are are pretty slim to none. So that means, and if that person has influence over your career, that means it's kind of up to us to manage that relationship. And that's what managing up is, is managing the relationship. So here's what I want people to do. The first thing you need to do is take a good look at who your boss is, who they really are, not who you wish they were, not who they should be, not who you need them to be, but who they really are. Don't judge who they are, pay attention. How do they communicate? What's their work style? Um, are they collaborative? Are they independent? Are they good communicators, bad communicators? Are they patient or impatient people? Um, what are their priorities? What are their goals? Like all these things, take a really look at person who they are. Find out, be a detective. Then you're gonna take a good look at who you are, who you really are, not who you think you are, not who you wanna be, but what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses, your preferences, your priorities, your pet peeves? How do other people experience you in the workplace? And then once you have a good sense about who your boss is and who you are, then you're going to assess the gap. And in that gap is where you are going to make choices about things that you could do more of, less of, 
or differently to better align with your boss's style. That's what we're talking about. So if your boss says, let's say that you have a boss who's, who's a ghost boss, all right? A boss who's never around. Then what your job is going to be is your job is going to be to track that person down. <laughs> like you are going to be proactive in your communication with that boss. You're going to have to schedule regular meetings to discuss critical projects. You are going to be prepared for when that ghost boss actually cancels half those meetings. That's okay. You are going to just keep scheduling more. You are also going to be, when you meet with your ghost boss, you're going to get in and you're going to get out. You're not going to, you're going to train your ghost boss to realize when I say I need five minutes of your time, Odo, I need five minutes of your time and get out. You're also going to have to learn how to fit both things, which is figure things the F word out. Like going to have to be a little more self-sufficient, a little more independent. You might have to do a little CYA, which is like, hey, Odo, just let you know, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. Uh, if you, if you think that's a bad idea, let me know by tonight or something like that. And you're going to build your network with other senior people in that organization, uh, in order to kind of get the development that you need to move forward. Those are some strategies you can try. I love that. That that's just a much better working relationship for, for everyone involved. Yeah. Yeah, because don't forget your manager, chances are your manager, you're just one person, but your manager has to manage multiple people, right? And so if we expect, and by the way, your manager should, let me just say this quickly, if you are a manager, you should be adapting yourself to the needs of your employees. I want to be really clear about that. But 70% of managers don't. So if you have one of those managers that's not very good at adapting his or her style to different styles, then it's up to you to adapt. That's great. I mean, it's a reality, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's so true. It, it's so true. And I, I'm sure some of the clients that you have worked with can can show as far as prove, Mary, I used to have this relationship before with my boss and now is here, right? I have to say, um, one of the best parts about doing this work is on a, almost on a daily basis, I'll get an email or a LinkedIn or a Twitter with someone saying, you know, your book, your workshop changed my life. Or like, this was the best advice ever. Like, and I have to say, you know, because I'm very passionate about uh, creating great workplaces or great workplace experiences that it just, it makes me so happy when I get that. Like, I really feel like I'm making a difference in the world. See, I use the I word. I feel like I am making a difference in the world, Odo. There you go. <laughs> One person at a time. Speaking about workplace, the workplace has dramatically changed the past year or so due to COVID. And what do you see as far as having conversations there with some of your customer and clients as far as how COVID's affected their business and have they implemented something differently or what's going on there? Yeah, so that's a great question. So it's, uh, gosh, this is a great question. So it, you know, the, this great experiment uh, of telework, uh, the one thing, the, the kind of silver lining of COVID is it really pushed organizations years and years and years forward in the blink of an eye in terms of their acceptance and their, uh, and their ability to navigate telework, because that is going to be part of the future any way you look at it. So I, it also, um, it's also really forced managers uh, at least the good ones, to think about how they manage. Uh, so many managers back in the day, pre-pandemic, would manage by uh, what we call by input. So they would manage by, if I see your butt in that seat all day long, I know you're working hard for me, Otto. Uh, but now they can't do that. So now they really have to learn how to manage by output. What is Odo accomplishing? What is his productivity? What has he actually gotten done? So I think in that level, I'm hoping that we keep that. The big conversation right now for organizations is what is the quote unquote future of work going to look like? 
I am pretty convinced that it's going to be, at least for the next year, it's going to be more of a hybrid model. So we're really uh, counseling our clients and really thinking about what a hybrid model might look like. And so for listeners who've never heard that term, uh, a hybrid model is where some folks are co-located in the office and some are still remote. Uh, so the hybrid model might mean that people are, everybody's working from home a couple of days and everyone's coming in for a couple of days. Or some people are, are in the office every day and some people are mostly remote. So thinking through how the processes are going to work with that, the communications, the expectations around hybrid work, uh, even little things like, you know, how are we going to hold our meetings? Are we going to go back to the time where those people in the conference room have to try to remember that those people are on the conference line? Or is everyone going to do it remote? So there's a lot of conversations people need to have. And one of the big conversations I'm encouraging uh, my leaders to think about now is when you, regardless of whether you're going hybrid or all co-located, the return to office. What is it going to take for people to feel safe? What are the protocols you need to put into place? What are the concerns that your teams or your staff and your employees have right now around returning to work? It's a great time for all leaders to do a survey with their people, finding out what their thoughts are, uh, and really taking a good hard look at, at their business, how they do business now, how they're going to do business, how they need to do business. It's a great time to kind of rethink the whole ball of wax. I'm sure now more than ever, Mary, just communication is even more important oh. than before, right? Oh my gosh, so important. And you know, we counseled this to leaders in the very beginning of the, of the, of the pandemic, but the, the, uh, the need for transparency in your communication is really key. Uh, and I know a lot of leaders are reluctant to speak before they know exactly what's gonna happen. And while I understand uh, that concern and it's a valid concern, what you have to weigh that against is that uncertainty breeds anxiety. We know that the need for certainty is a neuropsychological needs in humans. And when humans are faced with too much uncertainty, they get trapped by their amygdala. Their reptile brain takes over and they go into fight or flight. So the more that you can provide a little bit of certainty to your employees, the better. Even if you don't know the full answer, tell them what you do know. So I might say, Odo, I don't know what's going to happen, but here's our current thinking. In July, we're going to come back two days a week. We're all going to be required to wear masks, a, B, C, D, X, Y, Z. That's our current thinking and it might change. So I just want to let you know that now and we'll keep you abreast as things are moving. Like you don't want to give them a daily roller coaster of up and down, but you do want to be, show that you're being transparent with sharing what you do know. I love that. Mary, knowing what you know now, what, you what is it that you wish you would have known at the start of your career that you know now? <gasps> Such a great question. Oh my God, like a thousand things. Um, <laughs> I, uh, first of all, I want people to know that your career is a marathon, not a sprint, uh, and that there's going to be a long haul and lots of room for change and lots of room for experimentation. So being comfortable with like saying yes to one thing, knowing that it's not forever, you can say yes to something else two years later. So one, knowing that really was taking that long haul perspective. Uh, number two, I wish I had... I wish I had known that it's okay to ask for help. It is okay, like the power of networking, right? I wish I had known, like I had so many cool people in my life that I was so afraid to ask for help because I thought it would look weak or vulnerable or things like that. So I, I would tell my younger self, just let go of that, like let go of that. People like helping other people. It's okay to ask for help. Uh, and if someone says no, the next person might say yes. Uh, and then I think thirdly, um, and this is really important, especially to the young people out there who might be listening. Uh, we 
we sometimes give you a disservice and by we, I mean, us old people, when we say things like follow your passion, follow your heart, follow what was going to make you happy. Cause truthfully, I don't know that many people in their early twenties that know what it's going to make them happy. Then I didn't know what I want to do with my life until I was 35. Like, you know, so what I would say to you, to young people who don't know their passion, like if you don't know, you want to be a doctor, you know, just try to add things that interest you. And try on lots of different things that might interest you. And you'll be shocked how, you know, midway through your career, you'll be like, oh, that accounting job, now I know how to run my business. Oh, that job I took when I was a conference director, I know how to manage events. That job as a PR person, I know how to like publicize myself. Like everything you learn along the way is just another tool in your toolkit. So don't get hung up if you don't know exactly what you want to do. Just keep picking things up. Pick up experiences that you like. Pick up experiences that are helping you. Because I promise they all come together in the end. I love that. Great advice. Great advice. Mary, you're mentioning earlier that you have people that follow you that may have their own consultant business too. And you've done an amazing job as far as, you know, writing in Forbes, Harvard Business Review, Money Magazine, and there's a ton of others. How can someone, whether consultant or not, but maybe they, they want to be able to do that, what you've done, how can they go about doing something like that? That's a great question. Um, I may not be the best person to answer because all those people came to me. Um, so, You're actually uh, doing something right. You have Wiley and you have all these yeah, other publications yeah. coming to you. So, you know, one idea that, that you could try is if you have some initially take on something, you know, look at, look at some of your favorite places that you go. Like if it's Harvard or, or Inc or Forbes, these places are content, or if you're already on LinkedIn, um, these places are content machines. So if you're on LinkedIn, you can publish your own articles on LinkedIn, like just start publishing stuff. You can also reach out to bloggers or writers uh, in the different platforms and say, hey, I have an idea for a story for you. I know a couple of Forbes writers that that was their whole model is they would just interview other people and they would use your content. So I would interview you. I mean, I don't do this, but others like, Auto, I'll interview you about a topic of yours and then I'll publish it. I get my byline, but you're gonna get your name in it. And that starts getting you known. Interesting, interesting. So reach out to people, reach out to producers, reach out to anyone who's already doing it. Pitch your story idea. That's great. What would you say drives you and motivates you now? Um, I really am passionate about making people's workplace experience better. So, you know, uh, you know, you, we spend, you know, at, at, in a, the prime of our career, we're spending most of our waking hours at work. Uh, so I want those hours to be the best hours of people's lives, or at least really good hours, mm -hmm. hours where you could be fully alive. You can use your heart, you can use your head, like you can bring it all together. Uh, and uh, they shouldn't be the worst hours. And I really do. And since, and since, you know, what happens to us during the workday, we bring home with us, it affects us. Like, I know business is, is business, but work is personal. Uh, and so I want to be able to give people a better life by giving them a better work life. Because I do think that there is a cascade effect. Like imagine uh, when you, if you hate your job, what do you come home to do? You maybe come home and you, you, you bitch, you moan, you drink, you maybe you beat your wife or your children. Like, I don't know, <laughs> but like, it's going to affect us. So I think when people love their work or at least like their workplace experience, it's going to help make their whole life a better place, which will in turn help humanity become better at being human beings. I hope, I hope, I hope. It's so true. Even now I'm thinking about COVID as far as, you know, so some people with this whole telework work from home, it's sort of affected them in a positive way, sometimes in a negative way, because now they're dealing with all this craziness in the house and if they have young children, but some of them are enjoying it. And that obviously affects your personal life yeah. once you're done with sort of that nine to five. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And the COVID has blurred the lines for many of us who are who are a little bit prone to workaholism anyway. It's kind of blurred the lines. But yeah, you're right. Like it's it's our workplace experience impacts our life. Definitely. And I can even see myself now even working later than what I used to due to COVID. But it's I, I don't know what there's there's an enjoyment also in it now that I guess before it was different for me. And I I, I can't tell why. That's but because yeah. you're, well, you're a great example of somebody who, who, who is really good at remote work, right? It, like, it, like not everybody loves it, but some people really took to it and some people are energized by it. Some people are really miserable with remote work. And so that's, you know, that's why this whole kind of great experiment is also a good learning experience for us as professionals. Like what was easy for you? What was hard for you? What part of this experience do you want to keep with you? What part of this experience do you never want to revisit again? <laughs> yes. So Mary, coming to and here soon. What does the future look for you? What's the vision for the next five years or so that you have? I don't know. That's a great question. Um, I think, well, I think it might be different for me and my company. So for my company, we're, we're going to continue to innovate and do great work with our clients, both in terms of the trainings we offer, the workshops, definitely keeping this virtual thing uh, as much as clients want it, uh, really staying in the course, doing some great things that we can for our clients. For me personally, um, this is a perennial thing. Uh, I'm going to try and get a little out of the day-to-day -day business a little bit. <laughs> as you know, I can start to get more and do more things that I love, which are more of the, of the speaking uh, and the writing, because uh, I'm not writing nearly enough. And I know I'm supposed to do another book and all that. So um, I'm going to try to take myself a little bit out of the day-to-day -day delivery of our work and try to get more into the thought leadership part of our work. So you have a second book coming soon? Well, I haven't started one yet. I have to decide in the title. I keep going back and forth because I've been having so much fun uh, doing virtual work. And the, yeah, so now I need to stop doing so much of the of our regular career stone work. You know what I mean? I got I got to I got to figure out my time my time sure. management a little bit. Mary, can you share a little bit as far as what the topic may be as far as the next one or? Well, so I'm torn between two. So maybe your listeners can tell me which one would be more interesting to them. Um, well, I'm torn between three. So there's a whole bunch I didn't put into managing up. So I'm thinking about doing a revised version that's going to include virtual. It's going to include a lot more stuff, right? So I could just jam pack that a little bit better. Uh, uh, or I'm thinking about focusing more on managing ourselves and managing ourselves into our next career when it's time to leave that organization. So talk about that. Or the third one uh, is just talking about just putting on the table and talking about toxic bosses and toxic, toxic work cultures and what you need to do if you find yourself in one. It's great. All, all great topics. Yeah. And I just got to <laughs> pick one. <laughs> so when, when you're not busy with work and everything else, what do you like to do for fun in the free on your free time? Well, I, I, I'm <laughs> it's a bad person answering that question. What I, I'm so boring, Otto. So uh, I, I, I love exercise. So I walk every day. I do all that, get all that done. That's regardless of that. Um, I like to read. I like to read and do crossword puzzles. I like to do things that are very solitary uh, because I am an introvert. Uh, I'm highly functioning one, but my job is a very extroverted job. Uh, so when I have free time, I love to just read uh, and do crossword puzzles. My husband and I love to rent houses somewhere um, like in the country and just, just exercise in the morning. And then we just chillax and read all afternoon. Now, after this pandemic is over, we're going to go back to traveling. So we like to go to certain cities. Like, you know, uh, we like to go to uh, either American cities like New York, Chicago, San Francisco, or we like to go to Europe. Uh, and so we're going to get some more of that. And that's just mostly 
just walking and hanging out. As far as reading, is it actually your preference actually reading a book or is it more just audible being an audio? Oh, no. I'm an old English major. Okay. I like to read a book That's in my thought. hand, in my hand. And I will say this for the pandemic is that uh, because I, I did gain a little bit of time from traveling to client site and stuff, I have probably read two books a week and all fiction. Oh, wow. um, so I was, I really got back into reading some, just read some just beautiful, beautiful books. Uh, so that's been a really great thing for me. Mary, I'm curious. I, I know you would have to travel often before visiting, you know, organizations and clients now after post-COVID, do you see yourself doing the same traveling schedule or will that change for you and your business? Uh, you know, I don't know. That's a really great question. Uh, I would, I really like the travel, um, you know, like right before the pandemic hit, I was in the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean in the same week. Like it was all the time. I just got like elite, elite, elite status. <laughs> and boom, that's all gone now. Um, I probably, I, I was probably doing too much. If you ask my husband, he would say I was doing too much traveling. So I do hope, because I was somewhere every week. Uh, I, oh, wow. I hopefully maybe two or three trips a month okay. would be kind of, I want to kind of keep calming down for that. So, but you know, a lot of that was around the book promotion too. So we'll see what that, what happens um, when we come back to traveling. So. Great. So if I do miss want- airplane. I do miss air. I do miss like airplane wine. I'm not gonna lie. It's terrible <laughs> wine, but there's something so satisfying about sitting down and like having a bad glass of wine on the airplane. Well, yeah. So anyway, it, it is very different when you're traveling. It, the experience is, is just completely different. Yeah. Yeah. If Mary, if people want to find out more about you, your company managing up, where can uh, they go and find out more information? Uh, lots of places to find me. You can find me on LinkedIn uh, at Mary Abijay. You can find me on Twitter at Mary Abijay. I'm making it really easy. Uh, you can go to my company website, careerstonegroup.com. Uh, you can go to the book website, managingupthebook.com. Uh, or you can just Google me. I'm really easy to find. Yes. Mary, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, Otto, you're so sweet. Thanks for inviting me. This was really fun. Of course. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye. If you haven't done so already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review and comment and let me know what you think. Thank you. And I'll see you all very soon on the next episode.